Well, uh, in our study of Hebrews chapter 11, most recently we've looked at the unlikely kinds of people that God would save. Uh, We looked at Rahab, and then we looked at the unlikely kinds of people that God uses. We looked at Gideon and Barak, Samson and Jephthah. And then last week we looked at God using people that he's equipped for the task, and that's David. And the consequences of teaching through all that has, has been good. Uh, this week has been one of my most difficult weeks uh, in study uh, in all of my years of ministry because suddenly we have all these men that want to get involved in ministry. And that excites me very much. So, um, yeah, I got a few more to meet with and we'll see where that takes us. So please pray that um, more people would uh, be placed in ministry and, and uh, serving. Today, uh, we're going to look at someone who remained faithful in spite of circumstances, someone who was put in multiple situations where um, life could have been made, been made very bad for them. And uh, so as we've gone through Hebrews 11, the author has introduced each person to us uh, with, uh, by faith, he says, so-and-so uh, did this or that. And what we've discovered Uh, is that often what was done by faith was an act of faithfulness. It was an act of obedience. And we've pointed out uh, that the author often uses the word faith to describe obedience, okay? Uh, Rather than just what someone passively believes, as in believing in facts. So I would say that uh, the more you look at the book of Hebrews, you would say that he defines faith as faithful obedience to the Lord. That's his way of using it. And with that in mind, there's one last faithful person that's mentioned in Hebrews 11 who's, I think, worthy of our attention this morning. Um, Yeah. And that's Samuel. You guys read ahead in Samuel's life this last week? Because you knew I was going to talk about it. Nobody. All right, I get, it'll all be a surprise then this morning. Uh, let me uh, pick up uh, in Hebrews 11:32 uh, with where we find him in the chapter. The author says, "And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets." Now, don't worry, I'm not going to go through all of the prophets. Okay, not all of the prophets. So Samuel's the last person in the chapter. And and like David, uh, the author doesn't mention anything specific uh, that they did, okay? Uh, With David, I selected uh, one particular story uh, to draw from, uh, but for Samuel, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna kind of abbreviate his whole life, uh, but mostly just in these uh, various circumstances that he uh, was confronted with. And I wanna do that in order to Uh, draw some application out of it. Hopefully it will um, speak to you. So let me introduce it to you this way. Uh, This will be no surprise to you uh, that we live in a a culture where honoring God and doing the right thing is less and less desirable. You you picked up on that lately? Okay. And everyone is overly concerned with what everyone else thinks about them. And I'm sure that goes on in every culture and has been going on for hundreds of years, but we, thousands of years, but we now uh, have created a platform uh, with which we can 
uh, exaggerate all of this or push it uh, even further, and that's, of course, social media, where everybody wants a following, right? Everybody wants to be liked, they seek affirmation, uh, they want to be heard so that they can know what people think about them. Isn't that true? Whether that's the intention of social media, uh, who knows, but our, being what our culture is has steered it in that direction. Okay? Culture always steers everything. As you know, our youth, especially in uh, public school, are subject to an extreme uh, pecking order for social status and belonging, which highly impacts the course they'll take in this life. Uh, I'll never forget this kid in my youth group in Wyoming. He frequently wore a shirt that said, popularity is a social disease. It wasn't a disease that he suffered from, but inside wished that he had, as many people do. Okay, as many people do. As people, we have a tendency to go where we're accepted, and that's not always the best course of action. Uh, the longing of our heart, the longing of everyone's heart, can lead us down some, some really dangerous uh, paths. How many of you guys have read um, um, The Cries of the Heart from Ravi Zacharias? Who knows who Ravi Zacharias is? Oh, okay. Uh, it's a good book. You should read it. So. And the bottom line is, when you care about what people think, the bottom line is, it's man that you fear. It's man that you fear. And it's their opinion that steers you. Proverbs 29 verse 25 says, the fear of man brings a snare. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. And I'll qualify that by saying, ultimately, we'll be safe. Because it's not always safe in this realm to trust the Lord. Amen? At least physically, financially, reputation, what have you. And, you know, I've often told people, uh, and as I've often reminded myself, uh, why do you care what people think? You serve the Lord God. And a servant stands or falls based upon what his master thinks. Amen? So what difference does it make as long as you please the Lord? If you've pleased the Lord in what you've done and what you've said, who cares what everybody else thinks? And that's easily said, but it's not easily done, especially when important things are at stake like relationships, reputation. What about promotion? Promotion. What about your livelihood? Yeah. So we always know that our words and our actions, they have consequences. So do we do what's right because it's right regardless of the consequences or do we weigh the consequences in order to shape our decision? And of course, let's keep this in a spiritual, moral context. Yeah, something to consider. Samuel, the prophet Samuel, he, I think, is just a dynamite example of someone who trusted the Lord in spite of what important and powerful people thought, even when the stakes were high. Now, in order to kind of demonstrate this and get us into it, I'd like to read one particular story from Samuel that was really the turning point in his ministry. Uh, but then we'll back up and we're gonna survey his life. Now, the chapter's not too long like it was last week, so I would like you, if you're able, to stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 15. 
and I will be reading out of the New King James Version. And if you have to sit down midway, I won't call you out by name unless it's Gabe Anzalini, okay? (laughs) It begins by saying Samuel also said, because Samuel said a lot of things to Saul. Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in uh, that place there, Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, get out from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed among the Amalekites and Saul attacked the, the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, a king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen and fatlings, the lambs and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed." Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel saying, Saul went to Carmel, indeed he set up a monument for himself, and he's gone on around and passed by and gone down to Gilgal. And Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have, been, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. And Samuel said to him, Be quiet. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I've obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission in which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? 
Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Then Samuel said, or then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. And Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to the house of Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. Not always easy to read. But Lord, I thank you for the example of Samuel and the contrast with Saul. The man of faith versus the man of unbelief and fear. And I pray that you'd help us to draw from Samuel's experience and his life today that we'd be encouraged that obedience is best and that the fruit is ultimately always good. And so encourage us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Yeah, please be seated. It's been a while since some of you read that chapter. Yeah, I'm not sure I want to see a movie of that chapter. So, Now, you know, for me, I think Samuel is probably one of the most interesting prophets, not because he was, you know, sort of strange like some of the other prophets, but because of how much his love for Saul and the nation comes across in the midst of his confrontation. As the text said, he, he mourned, he wept all night for Saul. He cared for Saul, and he cared for the nation. And so in, in one sense, he's much like Jeremiah, you know, the weeping prophet, as he's been called. And the trouble, I think, for Samuel is just that. He, he loved his people, and Saul deeply, but he was loyal to the Lord unwaveringly. And that can be difficult. It can be difficult. The combination frequently lends itself to heartache and disappointment, all of which Samuel endured his entire life. Okay? As soon as God called him into the ministry, it was trouble. It was heartache because of just the way that Samuel was. Yeah. 
And Samuel's role, uh, of course, as a prophet was very similar with the other prophets, meaning that all of the hard stuff fell on him. That was the prophet. He got all the hard duties, the hard tasks. Uh, Like the other prophets, many of them, he was called at a a very young age, uh, much like Samson. Samuel was dedicated as a Nazarite from his birth. Uh, Write down Nazarite, you can look it up later. I don't want to talk about it this morning. And then, according to his mother's vow, imagine doing this, Mom, Samuel was permanently lent to the Lord for service in the tabernacle as soon as he was weaned, probably around age three. And at that time, his mother returned and gave this three-year-old boy to Eli to care for and to be raised as a minister in the tabernacle in Shiloh. Those would be hard days for Hannah, too, I think. She kept her vow. You can find the narrative in 1 Samuel 1 and 2. Now, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, it says that Samuel's father was an Ephraimite. This causes a little confusion uh, because he was, Samuel was serving as a Levite, and he had to be a Levite to serve. Uh, well, he was a Levite. Uh, his father was only a resident of Ephraim. His genealogy is actually found in 1 Chronicles 6, uh, verse 33 through 38. So uh, it was appropriate for Samuel to serve in the tabernacle. So there Samuel was. He's a boy uh, being trained for the ministry. And the task of doing the hard thing is the first thing for him. It's the first thing. Okay, the text doesn't tell us how old Samuel was uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 3 when the Lord first spoke to him, but he was probably a young man in his early 20s. Okay? Now, we typically have this in our minds that Samuel was still a little boy when the Lord was, you know, remember he, he was sleeping in the tabernacle and the Lord called to him and he, he wakes up, he says, here I am, and he goes to Eli and says, hey, you called me, what do you want? And uh, so typically we think that he's a little boy there Uh, But there's a number of reasons that we should avoid that. A Levite could not serve in the temple until he was 20 years old. That's one thing. And the text tells us that uh, Samuel was ministering before Eli in the tabernacle. And in that text, he's he's there sleeping in the tabernacle, and it appears to be the attendant of the menorah. His job was to be there to make sure the menorah did not go out at night. Okay. And you don't want to trust a three-year-old with fire. (laughs) And then 1 Samuel 3.1 says says this, says, and the boy Samuel ministered. Now the word boy can be pretty misleading. Uh, The same Hebrew word is used many times in the Old Testament, referring to people in their 20s and even their early 30s. Okay, so it oftentimes depends on who's talking that uses the word boy, right? To determine how somebody's age is, right? How many of you older people say boy and you mean somebody, or you say he's just a kid, but the guy's in his 20s? Yeah, they used it in a similar way. Also, at the time the Lord spoke to Samuel, Eli was blind, which was not the case when Samuel was little. In fact, nine months before Samuel was born, you remember the story, Eli was able to see from a distance Hannah's lips moving when she was praying. And he thought she was drunk, so he went to her and rebuked her. Okay. So a considerable amount of time has passed from his birth until now, and I think it's best to assume that he's about 20 years old, a little bit older, so we're not dealing with a little toddler. Okay. 
And so it was, while Samuel lounged in the court of the tabernacle, the Lord spoke to him, and it says that he appeared to him for the first time. And when the Lord spoke to Samuel, he was commissioned to know and communicate hard things. So at this point, he's being transitioned. He's no longer just a minister in the tabernacle. He is the oracle of God. The oracle of God. And here's how it began. The Lord told Samuel this. Behold, I'll do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day, I'll perform against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I've told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. And therefore, I've sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. That's hard stuff to hear about the man that raised you. Okay? Yeah? And following this, uh, the text says that Samuel was afraid to share the vision with Eli. He was afraid because of what Eli might think or what Eli might do. We don't know what he would do. Neither does Samuel. Okay. Samuel was made privy to the fate of Eli and his family, and the information was not to be kept private. In fact, Samuel didn't just reveal the vision to Eli. He recorded it in 1 Samuel chapter 3 for all of God's people to read and to be warned. That's why it's there. Okay. But what a hard thing to know and, and what a difficult thing to communicate. Now, perhaps you've noticed how knowledge can be a burden or put you in an awkward position. Yeah. People will tell you things and then say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to burden you with that. Well, don't next time if you didn't mean to. <laughs> Other times, uh, knowledge puts you in a position of obligation. Obligation. My brother once discovered that his Christian boss was looking at pornography. That was information that came with obligation. Yeah. The boss had to be confronted because he was a brother in the Lord. It didn't matter what his rank was. But what made things even more difficult was that my brother and his family lived in his boss's huge house. Now there's more risk than just his job. There's a risk with where he lives. Knowledge is extremely burdensome when it pertains to someone you respect or someone in power, especially if that person has direct authority over you, as Eli had authority over Samuel. You get it? Knowledge can be burdensome. It can be awkward. But with certain kinds of information can be obligation. And obligation fell upon Samuel. And the following morning, of course, Eli was curious. He wanted to know what the Lord had said to Samuel. So he pressed him for the information, and Samuel told all. And in that story, of course, Samuel suffered no consequences. At least nothing is stated. And the text says, So Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And as the story unravels in 1 Samuel 4, Eli's two sons were killed the same day that the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. And as soon as Eli got the word, it says he fell over backwards and he broke his neck and died. Word of God fulfilled. Word of God fulfilled. Samuel was called to know and do the hard thing. 
And this is what he could not afford. He could not afford to get entangled with what people thought, lest he avoid obeying the command of the Lord, which would have grave consequences. Yeah. Following the death of Eli and his sons, Samuel then got established him uh, and, and recognized his, him as a prophet and a judge in Israel. He did it publicly. In fact, Samuel was the last of the judges just before the era of the kings. And that leads us to the next hard thing when Samuel was older. We go from when he's very young to when he's old. Samuel was commissioned to anoint a king for Israel, a thing that God did not desire, but it was something that the people were adamant about. And God often allows people to have what they want, and when he does, it always comes with consequences. Yeah. And for Samuel, you know, he feared for Israel because of the implications of shifting from a theocracy to a monarchy, from God's rule over the nation by means of his word, to men ruling over the nation by means of their own will and their power. He was afraid of this. And it pained Samuel to, to pour that anointing oil on Saul's head, giving him the scepter of empire, the authority and the power, something Samuel knew would unravel in disaster. But the Lord told him to do it. Imagine knowing that you're gonna be, up on, the, you're, you're gonna be on the cleanup crew because you know the guy is going to be a train wreck, and you have to do it. And as we know, you know, Saul started off okay when he defeated the Ammonites, but it wasn't long before he fell on his face. Samuel's troubles with Saul began really in 1 Samuel 13. Saul's army was you know, deserting him because of the Philistines, and so driven by fear, but feeling empowered by his position, he presumptuously, disobediently, offered sacrifice to the Lord as if he were a priest, a king filling the role of priest. How presumptuous. As you can see, Saul was the opposite of Samuel. Saul was a man governed by fear and the perspective of others, all of which always steered him into moral destruction. Yeah. He was led by other people. Samuel, as the prophet of Israel, had to confront and rebuke Saul for this foolishness of his. But here's a question. How do you confront a king and rebuke him? A monarch, the one who wields all of the power of the nation. How do you confront him and rebuke him for his disobedience? It sounds dangerous. It's something that Samuel had never done before. This is the first king of Israel. And the question is, how would he respond to rebuke? This is uncharted territory. How do you respond to rebuke? Hey, high five, thanks. I love it. Appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, so is Samuel going to lose his head? Is he going to face some other punishment? He didn't know. But Samuel went to Saul, concerned only with his orders from the Lord. He calls Saul to account. He aggressively, it seems, or at least assertively, points out his foolishness. He exposes all of his disobedience, tells him that that his kingdom is finished, that God has already sought for himself a man after his own heart to make him commander of his people. And then Samuel walks away. No hugs. No, here's an explanation for my, my harshness. Uh, 
He gives it to him and he marches off. You know, it's one thing to possess knowledge that carries with it the obligation to tell someone you respect, as Samuel did with Eli, but it's altogether different to confront and rebuke the man who holds the scepter. This was a step up, wasn't it? It was a step up, and Samuel was faithful. Now, I I remember once when I had to confront an older man in the church that I, I served in years ago, and I was only about 27 years old. I was brand new in the ministry, and he was a respected deacon in the church. He was no king, but it sure felt like he was at the time. How many guys have rebuked an older person? How about confronted an older person? Okay. Uh, It's loads of fun. Yeah, it's loads of fun. He and his wife did something shady in a business transaction where they lied and they concealed details. It would have cost them a few thousand dollars, all of which he could afford. He was an engineer for a major oil company. But worst of all, when they came out on top, they attributed their success as a blessing from the Lord. Yeah. All these details from their situation were leaked in a women's meeting and then passed on to me. Not to the senior pastor, but to the young associate and the new guy in the church. And if the details were true, the issue had to be addressed. So as the younger man, feeling like a little boy, I went to the deacon visibly trembling. Okay, trembling. And I told him what I had heard and asked if it were true, of which he confessed. And so, as Paul told Timothy, I being the younger man, I did not rebuke the older man, but I exhorted him to come clean with those that he had wronged. Now, Depending on all of how all that went, it could have cost me my job. It could have. But according to the scriptures, did I have a choice? I really didn't. I really didn't. Unless I wanted to set a course for my life and ministry that would lead to failure. Yeah. I had to do something. I had to obey and I had to leave the consequences in the Lord's hands, trusting that he would take care of me. Yeah. Now, of course, my life wasn't on the line, but my livelihood was, and potentially my career with that ministry, that denomination. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I think as a pastor, my livelihood is on the line every time I get involved with a number of situations. But all of us have to decide, are we going to live as cowards, or are we just going to be faithful and let the Lord deal with the consequences? I remember once a friend of mine was in school for ministry and he had to write a paper on church government specifically regarding you know, the differences to, between pastors and elders and uh, their distinctive roles, of course, providing biblical passages for support. Well, not only was his position contrary to that of the seminary, my friend pointed out an error of interpretation made by the president of the seminary as he was teaching on church government from 1 Timothy chapter 5. Yeah. So my buddy's grade was at stake. The money paid for seminary was on the line, and his future with that particular ministry was in jeopardy. Yeah. Before he turned in his paper, he asked me, what do you think? I said, you should turn it in. As long as you believe it strongly, can support it biblically, and you're willing to pay the consequences. Yeah. Yeah, so he did. It ended in a minor debate with his professor. And, uh, and he got a decent grade. 
I agreed with this position, I would have given him an A. Uh, but whatever. My point is this, do what's right to please the Lord, even when it's risky, okay? And trust the Lord with the consequences. Just do it. How many guys have regretted obeying the Lord? Dang it, why did I obey the Lord? Who's done that? How many guys have suffered consequences for obeying the Lord? Yeah, I have. I have. Yeah, was it worth it? You remember when they beat Peter and the apostles for preaching the gospel? What did they do as they were leaving the Sanhedrin, the council? They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer persecution. Yeah, all for their obedience. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, things got harder for Samuel. In 1 Samuel 15, Samuel was commissioned, as we read, to command Saul to attack the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness. And God's instructions were to annihilate everything. Nothing was to be spared. But after God had granted victory over the Amalekites, instead of destroying everything, Saul spared Agag, their king, with the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, all that was good. And then all of that stuff God revealed to Samuel that night. And that's when Samuel was up mourning, weeping the whole night. And then early that morning, Samuel, he, he set off for the battlefield. But on his way, he met with someone who told him that Saul had erected a monument for himself and was parading himself around Israel and finally wound up at Gilgal. It's interesting holding a parade in his own honor. And so Samuel went to Gilgal to find Saul, and when they met, Saul begins with flattery. Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. And all the while, Samuel can hear the bleating of sheep, the lowing of oxen, which Saul, of course, had good reason for sparing. But Samuel said, be quiet. That is, shut up and listen. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul said to him, speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul says, oh, you don't understand. Oh, we we kept all the best so that we could worship the Lord. That is a lie. That is a lie. We kept at the stash back at the ranch, the best. Yeah. And Samuel's like, yeah, but what about Agag? You see, what what Saul spared Agag as a trophy to his own honor. We captured the king, and he's here on display. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from becoming king. Obedience trumps all. There is just no substitute for obeying the Lord. 
Now, if Samuel, out of obedience to the Lord, could tell a king to shut up and listen, that's, that's bravery. That's, I think that's courageous. Saul could have dispatched Agag, who was in his power. He could have. If Samuel could confront a king that way, Saul could dispatch this evil person that was in his power. He could have done that. And so we have this very strange story. The will of God at this point has still not been done. Agag is still alive. And so in the place of Saul, Samuel, the the aged prophet, he assumes the role of the king, fulfilling the duty that was not his own. He took a sword and he hacked Agag into pieces. Now, if you have the NIV, you have the PG version of the Bible. It says, put him to death. But the original language is far more graphic than that. Samuel hewed, hacked, and chopped. That's a disturbing visual. Yeah, Samuel demonstrated God's holy hatred for evil. I think it's second only to the demonstration that God made at Calvary with his son, how much he hated evil. Yeah. After this whole affair, Samuel would no longer meet with Saul. But even then, Saul continue, or Samuel continued to mourn for Saul. He had a hard life, didn't he? He had a hard life. Gave him a great deal of sorrow. But it didn't end there. Uh, Samuel was then called to risk his own life in obedience to the Lord. And he knew it. 1 Samuel 16, while Samuel was still mourning for Saul, the Lord said to him, Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I've provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. Now, mind you, Samuel isn't saying, I'm not going to disobey. He's saying, how can I obey without getting killed? Okay. And so the Lord had Samuel go to Bethlehem and announce that he's doing a sacrifice. It's sort of as a cover okay, to spare Samuel's life. Samuel goes, invites Jesse's sons. Now, what would this all look like from Saul's perspective? High treason, rebellion, insurrection. That's what Samuel is, would be if he knew in Saul's sight. And Samuel goes, he's fully aware of the danger, but he did just as the Lord said. And so there in Bethlehem, after being introduced to all of Jesse's sons, David was finally brought before him. And the Lord said to Samuel, arise, anoint him for this is the one and then Samuel took the horn of oil and you know you realize when the scriptures say that somebody was anointed with oil they they empty the horn so it's just running off the person's body but back then they they just rubbed it in slick their hair back could you imagine a dusty desert place goodness yeah he anointed David in the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward, 1 Samuel 16, verse 12 through 13. Now, before I close, I want to mention one more example. In 1 Samuel 19, 18, it's years later, David has, at this time, become the enemy of the state, and he's running for his life from Saul. And in his flight from Saul, David went to Ramah. That's where Samuel lived. And he tells Samuel everything that Saul had done to him, And so then Samuel aided and abetted a fugitive, all because he knew that David was the Lord's anointed, and he took him to Naioth, 
Yeah, he knew, and so he helped him. There's great potential for this. <laughs> There's great potential in Samuel being killed for this because what did Saul do to the priest that helped David? He had him murdered. He had him murdered because as Saul has advanced through this whole thing with David, he's become crazy. And he's willing to kill anybody that gets in his way. Okay, anybody. Yeah. But Samuel, through it all, he's committed to obeying the Lord. He only concerned himself with what the Lord thought. And that's tremendous, I think. Samuel determined at a young age that obedience was just what I do. And I'm going to let the Lord deal with the consequences. And he had a, an uneasy life because of it. You know, he wasn't raised by his own mom and dad, but by Eli the priest, who wasn't fit for the task. He was called early to share unpleasant revelation with his superior. He was called to rebuke the foolish king of Israel for assuming the role of a priest, which was super presumptuous, making sacrifices. Samuel was called to confront Saul's pride and disobedience for sparing Agag, and keeping the plunder, Samuel was forced into the role of a king when he executed Agag. And Samuel risked his life twice in obedience to the Lord. Once for anointing David, another time for aiding and abetting David as a fugitive. The guy was committed. He's committed. Yeah, his trust in the Lord was demonstrated by obedience. At times when obedience was unpleasant, it was uncomfortable, it was illegal. Did you catch that? His obedience at times was illegal, at least in the eyes of Saul and men, and oftentimes it was dangerous. I, I think that Samuel's example is important. I think it's important for everybody. I think it's important for pastors who are tempted to follow the opinions of people rather than the word of the Lord. Do we see compromise with that in the West? I would say so. For teenagers who are pressured by their friends to do what is ungodly, do you love it when you find a teenager that is just so convicted about righteousness that he will not be steered? It's sweet stuff. For businessmen who are supposed to go with the corporate flow, for parents who are pressured by the world to raise their kids according to worldly standards, yeah, it takes a tribe, doesn't it? <laughs> for husbands and fathers who thought of less because they desire to give their families more of themselves, we need people that are committed, I think, before our society falls apart. You know, as a pastor, I have to be reminded of this often because, you know, everything I say, whether from the pulpit or in casual conversation, along with every decision I make, is under the scrutiny of hundreds of people <laughs> who all have their opinions and their individual expectations. You know how strange it is to stand in front of people? Because <laughs> I can read people's faces pretty good, and some of you are like, what is he talking about? And other people, I'm like, I don't know, I don't know. There's a couple hundred of you in here and everybody is making a different face. You're all evaluating what I'm saying. Is it true? Is it reasonable? Is it? Yeah, it's, it's a little nerve-wracking. And you can easily be steered by what people think or what you think people will think of you. Yeah. And all of us have to consider, we have to think about, do we care more about what God thinks or what people think? And of course, it's easily said, but not easily done, especially when things are at stake, like your livelihood, okay? Your job, your family, promotion, reputation, okay? So doing what's right 
when there's much to lose, requires that you trust the Lord. Otherwise, what you're going to do is you're going to buckle and find yourself in a place of compromise. And if you begin down that course, it's difficult to get out of it, okay? Especially if benefits came with it. But it ends in destruction. You know, Paul talks about the course of this world with its opinions and its perspectives. It should not determine our course because the course of the world is on a crash course. It is destruction. It leads to destruction. And we need to trust the Lord. We need to be strong. And as he began with, ultimately the safest course is the will of the Lord. And when we look at Samuel's life, when we look at the lives of God's people, they may suffer in this age because of their stand for righteousness. But do we live for this world? I hope not. I was going to say something, but I hope not. (laughs) This world doesn't have much to offer, and it's temporary. Go ahead and stand up and let's pray. Next week, I hope to finish Hebrews 11. Uh, I don't want to make any promises, but I am excited to get to Hebrews chapter 12, where the author himself begins to unravel uh, the application of all that he's said throughout the whole book. And, um, and then just as a heads up, when we're done with Hebrews, we're going to be going to Galatians. Uh, but I'll probably do some textual studies uh, between the two books. So, but we might be out of Hebrews by August. Who knows? <laughs> we'll see. Let's pray. Well, Father, I, I think that here at Calvary Chapel, I'm, I'm certainly in many ways preaching to the choir, to those that do stand for righteousness. But Lord, all of us are tempted, and all of us have stumbled and all of us could use more strength. Lord, obeying you is never regrettable. It's always good, even when there's not fruit, good fruit in this world for doing it. And Lord, I pray that we would continue on the legacy of Samuel, that we would be unwavering in our commitment to you, that we would be uncompromising, that we would trust you, And Lord, that when we have information, and we have lots of it from your word, with that information is obligation, Lord, that we would be faithful to it. Even when it's awkward, even when it may very well impact our well-being, Lord, that we would just be faithful. Give us courage, we pray, by your spirit. Help us to concern ourselves with what you think and not to weigh the consequences. Help us to just look to you, Lord. I thank you for my church family. I pray that this week you give them opportunities to stand for righteousness. And I pray that those around them would be encouraged and blessed by it, Lord. So encourage their hearts this week. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>